Forever Student Always a Reader podcast where I discuss all of my reading and academic adventures. Here is episode two and I hope you enjoy. Hello everyone, today is going to be a super fun and jam-packed podcast day because I will be talking about seven of my favorite books of all time as well as some lessons that are discussed within Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So we got a lot going on today, which is going to be super fun and hopefully entertaining. And you guys get to pick up some new books as well as some new lessons on education. So let's hop right in because I have a lot to talk about. Alright, so I'm going to quickly start with talking about the book that I just finished last night, which was the book that I mentioned on last week's episode, and that was Dream a Little Dream by Kirsten Gear. Unfortunately, I didn't enjoy this book as much as I did when I read it for the first time in middle school, and that's one of the reasons why, is obviously because I'm older and just the themes don't really apply to me anymore. Um, the protagonist is 15 and I am 19, so there's a little bit of a age gap there. There were just too many plot holes within the story and I just didn't really jive with it anymore. So I honestly still do plan on reading the second book and maybe even the third. I do have the second book, so maybe if I'm feeling up for it, I'll pick it up in a few weeks or a few months. But yeah, unfortunately, I gave that one a 2 out of 5 stars. Not the worst thing I've ever read, but definitely not the best. So that brings me to the book I plan on starting today and reading for a few days, and that is Upstream by Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver is just an amazing and lauded poet and essayist. Unfortunately, she has passed away, but I feel as though she's been gaining a lot of traction recently with new readers and I this one I saw in a bookstore I just really liked the idea of it and so it's a collection of essays about nature and literature which is incredible especially since I can't really go outside and enjoy myself because it's freezing and there's way too much snow right now so I'm just going to be living vicariously through Mary Oliver and I'm just so excited to do that so that's the plan for this week at least. I'm not sure how fast that will take me or how long it will take me to read, so we'll just say that's my only reading plan for now. So now I'm going to be moving into my favorite books of all time. Honestly, this list was kind of hard to create, not because I had too many that I wanted to add, but because I couldn't really think of so many that I would put on this list because I am a very particular reader when it comes to my favorite books. So I do have here a set of seven and I'm just going to jump right into the first one and that is Heretics Anonymous by Katie Henry. If you want to laugh throughout an entire novel, please, please, please pick up this book. We follow our main character, Michael, who is forced who is forced to attend a Catholic school even though he is an atheist. And on the first day of school, he sees this girl in their history class standing up to the nun, claiming that she is incorrect about these factual occurrences. And so he believes that she is just like him, a self-proclaimed atheist. However, she's actually the opposite. The girl, Lucy, wants to be a priest. 
So Lucy introduces Michael to the world of Heretics Anonymous, which is a group that meets in the basement of their Catholic school and discusses their different religious affiliations. And it's hilarious. I promise you, you will laugh. And if you don't, maybe we just have a different sense of humor, but it's so, so funny. And I recommend it to literally everyone. If religion matters to someone, it doesn't mean they're discounting your own religious beliefs, whether you're Catholic or Christian or uh, Jewish or even an atheist. It doesn't mean that they're saying your beliefs are wrong and that whatever God you follow doesn't exist or whether or not you follow God. It just means what they believe in and what gives them a sense of reassurance is different What gives is different for what gives you a sense of reassurance. So I just really enjoyed that book and I think it would be great to have in a classroom. It shows that having different beliefs is okay and if the majority of kids follow some certain religion and you don't, that's perfectly fine. And it's also funny, which I've mentioned a hundred times and I just really recommend that you pick this up. Katie Henry is, in a, is a great author and I love her so much. So the next book is a little bit different, and by a little bit, I mean a lot, and that is The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery by Gabrielle Zevin. I read this a few years ago now, and it's incredible. So we follow a middle-aged bookseller named A.J. Fickery, who one day opens his door and finds a baby has been left on his doorstep. He unwillingly, kind of, takes it, it takes the baby in, and learns what a new life can bring into an old one. And this, if you love to read, please pick this book up. First of all, we have the setting of a bookstore. Second of all, the main character is a bookseller. And third of all, he leaves reviews of books for his daughter at each um, chapter beginning. And it's just so amazing and cute to read. This book will bring you so many joyful feelings, but also sad feelings about the meaning of different life experiences can bring you and it's amazing i cannot recommend this one enough if any if any book on this list could fit any person's reading taste i think it would be this one so if you're more of a picky reader i think you would really enjoy this one because it has so many different elements and so many different themes that i think everyone and anyone can connect to. So that is The Storied Life of A.J. Fickery by Gabrielle Zevin. Into the only historical fiction book that I have on this list, and that is Salt to the Sea by Ruta Sepetis, or Sepetis. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that last name, but the reason why this one is on my list, instead of the um, hundreds of other ones that I've read that I could have chosen from, this book has stuck with me the longest. So this is a historical fiction about the deadliest maritime disaster, the Wilhelm Gutzloff, and we follow four characters, Amelia, Joanna, Florian, and Alfred, who are simply trying to find their way home. And this book does character so well, and it does setting so well, and it does tragedy so well. And 
it's simply incredible. I have read almost every single one of Ruta Cepetis' books, and this one is just my favorite. I think her characters are the best that she's created within this book, even if one of them is so deeply frightening. Um, she just does that so, so well. And even the fact that she has four different characters who she is trying to balance their characteristics. She's trying to balance how they are going to survive in the setting that she's chosen. And she's also trying to create relationships between each and every one of them and how those connect or diverge and things like that. And I think this is just the best example of her doing that with any of her books obviously besides out of easy because I haven't read that um and I have learned from this that as well as my other history classes but I feel like this really exemplified it because we believe or a lot of people believe who maybe aren't the best history buffs or the greatest history buffs that the that the Titanic was the deadliest maritime disaster uh, actually, it wasn't. It was this one, and it had refugees on it. Um, it actually also had Nazi sympathizers, uh, just to make that clear. But I think I've learned from this book specifically that history is rough, saying that in the simplest terms. History is also record-based for those who have won, those who have controlled a narrative of dominance. We can see that in every single textbook in the United States that the winners of the wars, the winners of taking land, those are what we see in the history books. And simply, those winners aren't necessarily the greatest of them all. And so stories, even before one's time, can be incredibly moving and powerful. And I think so many historical fiction books, maybe not just this one, but pretty much... Um, so many historical fiction books just teach you that that even if you weren't a part of that time you don't have the direct experience you aren't a primary source from that time you can still feel those moments of grief and loss and loneliness and utter despair by sitting in a reading chair and just reading from the perspective of teenagers in this case who are just simply trying to survive and are trying to survive because they practice a certain religion or they are part they are a different nationality from the one who has been asserting dominance and oh this book makes me sad but it's so amazing and i may also will be having this book for sure on the bookshelf in my classroom Moving on to a little more of a happier um, selection, and that is Fangirl by Rainbow Rowell. I'm sure you have heard of this if you are within the book world or honestly, you are a teenager and you've just heard of this book. It's very popular and I think for good reason. We follow Kath in her first year of university and she is struggling to step out of her shell. Her only true companion now is her fan fiction of the beloved novels of Simon Snow, which is kind of like Harry Potter in this world. 
So Kath has a twin sister and she thought that they would be living together in the dorms and that they would be together 24-7, that moving from home to college wouldn't really be that much different. However, her sister has different plans. She wants to branch out, meet new people, live with someone else, and Kath just isn't about that. So she finds her own way with the help of her roommate, Reagan, and Reagan's best friend, Levi, and it is just a young adult novel about the just missteps of college and the missteps of or even positive steps of what college experiences can bring you and from this book I've learned that anxiety is real um, I had I don't think I had read a book with a character who suffered from anxiety in such a strong representation of my own experiences with anxiety and I just really appreciated that at the time and I still do after reading this book like four times over I really just feel for Kath because she's so close to me and also in terms of the whole college experience you don't have to be the person who goes to a party every single night you can also still like the things you liked before you went to college. You don't have to change into a completely different person. Maybe if you want to, maybe if you want to go um, and do a complete makeover just because you're in college, that's cool. You do you, but not every single person has to do that. And I think that's the problem within the media, that they portray the college experience as the college experience, as if it's the only one, when really it's not. And obviously, I can attest to that because I am experiencing college in the middle of a pandemic. Who else has done that before? I'm not really sure. I haven't been able to go to a party. Probably not that I would, but I haven't even had the chance to. I haven't had the chance to live in a dorm either. So how is that a part of the college experience? I'm not sure and I'm also going on a tangent because that just makes me mad that college is diminished to going to parties, drinking, um, doing not so great things rather than, I guess for me, the more important things, making better relationships, getting a proper education, and moving on to your later, your later years in life. So that's that on that. I really love Fangirl. It's an amazing book. It has a great and awesome romance. And if you like writing, this is amazing because Kath is a fan fiction writer and she's in a writing course. And this book is just great. I love it. I think it's Rainbow Rowell's best, although I've only read Fangirl, Eleanor and Park, and Carry On. And I just didn't really like Eleanor and Park and Carry On. So this one is my go-to for Rainbow Rowell. Next we have... Um, one of the books that I read last year on a whim had heard of no one talking about it. I think the cover just popped up on Instagram or Goodreads or something like that. I went to the bookstore, bought it, read it in two days, and then it became my favorite book. Well, one of my favorite books of all time. And that is A Room Called Earth by Madeline Ryan. Oh my gosh, in the same vein of appreciating nature as Upstream by Mary Oliver even though I haven't read that yet, I feel like this just takes the appreciation for nature in 
like multiply that by a thousand. So we follow, well, we have a slice of life story about an unnamed narrator who goes to a party on Christmas Eve and has a connection with one of the other party goers. And that's basically it. We, this is such an introspective novel that you really get every single sense of what the main character is going through, even though we don't even know her name, but we know every other thing about her and how much she is in tune with nature and is in tune with herself and also kind of with everyone else around her. And I've learned from this book that nature is so incredible and the connection that you form with your inner self can be extremely freeing and powerful. Whether you find that connection within nature or within the four walls of your room, that's cool. But this book, oh my gosh, I loved it so much. It was very weird, I will say that. I feel like it's kind of like an out-of-body experience in a way. Because the main character is just so at one with herself and you're just reading it wondering how did she get to that point and I feel like that's also kind of a plot within the story besides the fact that she's going to this party and trying to get things done but we also get to see her how she gets those things done and I feel like those are the two plots within the story. Once again it's a very character driven story hardly any plots and very introspective so if you're not about that I wouldn't really recommend this but if you are please pick this up it's so so incredible and that was A Room Called Earth by Madeline Ryan. Next I have the book that I read two weeks ago and I cannot believe it took me this long to read it, and that is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, and in this, it is a post-pandemic story about the resilience of people. That's as simply as I can put it, and I don't want to really describe it too much more, because I feel like you need to go into the story knowing the fact that a pandemic has happened and people are trying to survive. That's it and that's all you should go into it with. I, this book, oh my gosh, I am obviously at a loss for words. Um, so going with the lessons that I've learned from it, people can be good and they can be horrible. <laughs> I think with the characters in this book, it shows the spectrum of our behaviors and it's such an interesting way because tragedy has struck there's the earth is desolate there's literally nothing else because the pandemic the georgia flu has taken literally everything and the people have to find out how to survive even after they experience the amazing things like the internet and just technology in general and like having the ability to call someone on a cell phone they had all that they had grocery stores and they had uh, movie theaters and they had theaters they had theater and that is you can just see how being taken from that can truly change someone on that same vein once tragedy strikes no one knows how everyone is going to act and with that it's 
past experiences make them who they are. This book is about the resilience of people and how, and we're finding out how these people are surviving when it seems like there is nothing left to survive for. And I just love this book so much. But also, it is not the best choice to read it during a pandemic because some of the moments just seem way too real. So I will take, I will say to take that with a grain of salt. But this is Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. The last of my favorite books of all time, the one that I introduced last week, and that is Looking for Alaska by John Green. Um, you've probably heard of this. I would be very surprised if you haven't. John Green is uber famous. He is incredible. I love him. I love what he does for students with his crash course, and I love his work. So we follow in Looking for Alaska, Miles Halter, who attends Culver Creek boarding school and enters the world of Alaska Young, a girl who is set on escaping the labyrinth of life. This is an intense coming-of-age story. Yeah, I read this when I was in sixth grade. Way too young to read it, I think. I don't think I appreciated any of the nuances that John Green had included within this book, or maybe I did, and that's why it affects me so much, even to this day. But yeah this has made me the reader that i am today because it's such a character story um really very much is and the lessons i've learned from this is that young adults can have intelligent conversations which seems very stupid to say that like i had the idea that young adults just talk about like dumb things all the time children or even just teenagers have such incredible minds and we need to listen to those minds more especially as a future teacher, I need to take that lesson to heart. Um, also, from looking for Aleska, I've learned that love matters and listening to one another matters. This book deals with mental health in a way that feels probably for some a little bit convoluted, I think, because it you don't really know what's going through Alaska's head, and that can seem a little bit just not right but also mental health is a journey and that's what this book takes you on so I just think that's something to take into consideration and lastly the time of being a teenager is a period of emotional extremities where everything feels so raw and once you step out of that period life never feels that emotionally heightened maybe ever again. I have felt this feeling so strong. No, it's just like not a concrete experience that you could describe other than by saying I've made it through high school and this is what it felt like. And everyone's like, oh yeah, that's just the high school experience, you know? But why is that the high school experience? Why does everything feel so heightened? And why does everything feel like it doesn't matter to anyone else except yourselves? I think that's a really interesting topic that John Green explores very well in Looking for Alaska. And I, this book will make you cry for sure. And I also 100% recommend the mini series on Hulu. Uh, it's 
also called Looking for Alaska. It is the adaptation and it's incredible. It is one of the best adaptations of a book I've ever watched. It's so close to the story. Any changes that they make are the story's better for it. And I just love that. And I love Looking for Alaska by John Green. Well, we are going to go on to the teaching section, the academic portion of the podcast by talking about the pedagogy of the oppressed by Paulo Freire. And I know I'm pronouncing that wrong and I apologize. Pedagogy of the oppressed, such an interesting take on education. And I say it's interesting when really it's just the fact that this is what our education has become um, and what schooling has become. And once I read this, I read it literally two weeks ago. So I am definitely not the academic um, of the hour for this one. Well, I guess I am the academic of the hour, but I'm not the best academic to go to for this as I've only studied it two weeks ago and these are just simply my thoughts as a future English teacher. So I wanted to give some definitions for the main points that Paulo talks about within the pedagogy of the, the oppressed just in case You've never heard of this before. Totally and completely fine. I don't expect everyone to be a teacher or future teacher. So we are going to start with the two main points within the educate within the education system that the pedagogy of the press is talking about. So number one is the banking model, which is what a lot of current classroom settings look like. So this is a critique on the traditional school system in which students are the containers that teachers are pushing material into. If you've ever felt that way, I am with you. Math, for example, or even honestly, let's say history, it feels like they're throwing dates and um, just facts at you. And what's the relevance? I don't know. It feels like it's we're just there to memorize things and nothing feels as if it relates to our lives which can be so frustrating when you're still trying to figure out what your life looks like within high school or even middle school and here our teachers are just throwing things at you and they're not asking you questions and you're not and they're not wondering how their students are relating to this and this is what um Paulo Freire is talking about so he says, this is a long quote here, so uh, Freire says, the teacher talks about reality as if it were motionless, static, compartmentalized, and predictable, or else he expounds on a topic completely alien to the existential experience of the student. His task is to fill the students with the contents of his narration, contents which are detached from reality, disconnected from the totality of the engendered them, and could give them significance. Words are emptied of their consciousness. Oh, sorry. Words are emptied of their concreteness and become a hollow, alienated, and alienating verbosity. I love this quote because if that doesn't describe my last year of English within high school, I don't know what does. I felt like nothing that I read had any weight to anything that I had learned in the past. And my teacher wasn't asking questions as to what do you guys think this means? How does it compare 
to any book that we've read previously or any experience that you've had previously or how does it looking at it through a critical lens such as um i can't think of what the lens is called but like the historical lens or even a feminist lens or psychoanalytic lens what does that look like if they're as you're watching god by zora neale hurston with little to no discussion if zora neale hurston wrote that book for students to have no discussion why would she write it in the first place? Or for anyone to have no discussion? That's not the point of books. The point is for us, for students to be reading them and learning something and changing our mindsets on things that we had never heard about previously and learning that things change. That we have gone from the lowest pit of action to the highest depths of critical thinking and that's what the classroom is for but the banking model leaves room for none of that however the problem posing model is where it gets interesting the problem posing model is a potential solution to the banking model six key characteristics of the problem posing model include bear with me here because there are six and i do have some descriptions for them so number one learners are conscious and capable teachers need to realize this that students don't come into the classroom with no prior knowledge they've been to school let's say you're an 11th grader they've been to school for 10 years like they have to have learned something and that's just number one simple 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 number two learning takes place through problem solving i.e the answer is not already known teachers and I say this with going into teaching, I feel as though teachers have the answer that they want students to come to or the conclusions that they want to have students come to already set, and that's part of the lesson plan. But if they don't know the experience of the students as every student experience is different, how would we all come to the same conclusion? I I'm not sure. I, that's something that has always bugged me, especially in my English classes. So I think that's an interesting take. Um, number three is learning must be practical. This is where I kind of diverge from the problem posing model because students can argue that, let's say, in a literary setting, that there is no point in reading a book from the 1600s or the 1700s let's say the scarlet letter by nathaniel hawthorne true what's the relevance to their lives now what's i think that's one of the major questions or that even arises in um, math classes more often when students are wondering why am i learning the quadratic formula what's the point when i'm not going to be using this in real life or when I'm out of school, that was definitely me. Um, and it's true, learning must be practical, but I feel like there is some point where learning, you don't need to use every single thing that you learned in real life. If you take, if you don't take any lessons away from reading a book, that's fine. You just had the experience of reading a book. I don't see why it needs to be exactly applicable to your daily routine in life so that's just where i diverge a little bit but everything else i agree with 
um, vehemently. So next one, number four, the fourth characteristics of the problem-posing model is students and teachers are co-investigators. And Frere says, education must begin with the solution of the teacher-student contradiction by reconciling the poles of the contradiction so that both are simultaneously teachers and students. The part of so that both are simultaneously teachers and students is where I think this is the strongest point that we see teachers as like a ultimate power, an ultimate holder of knowledge, that they have all this knowledge. And yes, they are willing to give that knowledge away to students because obviously they're teachers, like that's their job. But it always feels like they're kind of unreachable, you know? Um, when, I don't know, it just feels like they're in a separate space from teacher and student and that they have nothing else to learn which who doesn't have anything left to learn like you're constantly learning that's what's so great about education and every resource that we have around us is that we're constantly learning and taking in information and so it's kind of difficult when teachers have the conclusions already set in their head that this is how it's going to go this these are the lessons that are going to be taught when really maybe you have another lesson to learn so I really like that point and the next one is the teacher learns from students I cannot imagine a teacher not learning from a student um, I think you just have to be more open-minded and learning is a process of becoming I love this because as I've said throughout this uh, episode you are learning who you are in high school, you're learning who you are in middle school and college, and if you are the same person that you were in high school compared to your adult self, I would be extremely surprised. Frere says, the teacher is of course an artist, but being an artist does not mean that he or she can make the profile, can shape the students. What an educator does in teaching is to make it possible for the students to become themselves. Yes, I love that teachers give us books to read that we can identify with, but if we had no room to read what we wanted, who who knows what we would be like if we had no room to discover what things we like in terms of different subjects such as psychology or math or photography or um, computer science, things like that. Who knows where we would be? We need that room to grow and... That's what the problem-posing model gives us. And lastly, the last point I want to make on this, as the podcast is coming to a close, my number one is the importance of dialogue. Teaching, in my opinion, cannot be a one-way street where the teachers are constantly throwing information at their students. I think this is where I disagree with the point that learning must be practical especially with the aspect of analyzing literature with a critical lens. As I've mentioned before, this is the exact point I made. Students are not receptacles, or the banking model proposes that students are receptacles who can constantly take in information, memorize it, and then throw it away. Get new information, memorize it, throw it away. 
that's not learning, that's memorizing, and that's not how the education system should be, but that's how it is right now. And as a future teacher, I take it upon myself, as hopefully a lot of other teachers do, that we need to have more discussions and more questions within our classroom and just see what the students are feeling and read the room. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's a good lesson to take from this. Read the room. What do your students like? What are they like? How are they receiving your lessons? Things like that. And I think that will be a good thing to explore as I'm going along this journey of becoming an English teacher. And that about wraps it up. Holy crap, we went over a lot of stuff today. But I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This was super fun, a little bit longer than episode number one, and that rhymed. And I hope you guys enjoyed this. You took something from it, got some new book recommendations, learned some things, and that's the whole goal here. So I hope you enjoyed, and I will talk to you guys soon in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.